come to your word this morning, as we come to these words about who you are, I pray that you would send your spirit to help us, to open our ears, to open our eyes, to open our hearts, and to behold the wonders of your glory, of who you are, your power, your majesty, your love, your mercy, your grace. Would we see you, Lord Jesus, because you have said when you are lifted up, you will draw all people to yourself. Would you do that this morning? Be lifted up through the power of your word and draw us to yourself so that we would be changed, so that the everyday realities of our lives, the things that we worry about, the things that we chase after, the things that capture our attention, the things that, that divide us and break apart our relationships, that all of these everyday realities would be changed in the light of beholding your glory. Would you come and do that in us this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've got a question to start us out here. Kids might have to help us on this one. I'm not sure if uh, all the adults will know this one, but here's the question. What does it mean to call somebody the goat? Y'all heard that? The goat? Oh, they're the goat. They're the goat. Okay, what's the goat? The greatest of all time. The greatest of all time. You get that? G-O-A-T. Greatest of all time. And it's something that you say. It could really apply to anything. It could be in sports. It could be in music. Uh, it could be uh, you know, an actor. It could be literally in any area of life. And it's a way of stating, hey, this person is the greatest. They're the goat. We have this debate going on in our house all the time. Who's the GOAT? You know, NFL football. All right, quarterbacks, who's the GOAT? And the debate rages on. You know, Bray's like, it's Aaron Rodgers. Everybody else in the house is like, it's Tom Brady. I don't like him, but he's the GOAT. Okay? And these debates are going on all the time. Who's the greatest running back? You know, the greatest college running back, it's very obvious to everybody who's heard debated who the GOAT is. It's Herschel Walker, right? We know this. <laughs> There's something about us. Even if you've never heard that term goat, that we're always wrestling with. We always want to know. We always want to, to debate and, and to figure out who is the goat, who is the greatest. And we're always doing this, like assigning this glory to people. You know, we can do this, of course, in sports. We can do it, uh, we can do it. In the ways that we we idolize movie stars, you know their their beauty, their fame, their their talent. You know we just we're mesmerized by them. We want to know stories about them. We want to know about their life, and we 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 model them and we we watch their movies. We do this with musicians. The other day I was watching a it was like a 2020 interview on Paul McCartney. Now surely you've heard of Paul McCartney. He is actually the richest musician of all time. I kind of found that kind of stunning. And if you know anything about Paul McCartney, you know he was a part of the original Beatles. And if you don't know what the Beatles are, you need to go get educated, right? <laughs> I mean, they're the GOAT, many would say, in music. And Paul McCartney was one of the, the original Beatles, and he went out and he had his own solo career. And this, this interview was just really just sitting down with him and like kind of getting to know Paul McCartney and, and living in his world and walking around with him. And, and one of the things he was talking about is what it's like to be idolized. What it's like to 
to have fame all around you. What it's like to wear like wherever you go, like people pass out, they scream, they lose their mind. And he said, you know, one, one thing that happens all the time now is that whenever I see people out and about, not only do they want to come up and talk to me or whatever, in fact, they don't want to talk to me that much. The first thing I see them do whenever somebody sees me is they're reaching in their pocket. What are they reaching for? Their phone. They're going to take a selfie. Right? It used to, it, it was an autograph. Right? If you saw someone who like had amazing glory, like imagine right now if like LeBron James walked into this room or, or Paul McCartney walked into this room, what would happen? Like instantly everyone would be like, whoa. Because we, we assign a certain amount of glory in it. In, in old times, it would have been a line, a, a, a line of people lining up, wanting an autograph. You know, sign something, sign my skin, sign you know, a piece of paper, something. We want an autograph because we can say, listen, I was there. there there's a connection to this person. Well, the selfie just takes it to a whole new level, right? Because you're next to them. I'm here. Their glory is now part of me. There's a connection here. That's why we love selfies. No matter if it's a, a person, it's a famous person, or some beautiful setting, or some amazing experience that we're, we're getting to experience, the selfie is a way of saying, there is glory in this, and I'm attached to that glory. See, we're doing this in all kinds of areas of our life, and it's how we're made. To be a human being means that you have been created to behold glory. To chase glory, to love glory, to uh, have some of the glory. And we just all naturally do it. I mean, if you really want to understand why we do the things that we do, why do humans do the things that they do and chase after the things that they chase after and get enslaved by the things that we're enslaved by? The answer is it's all about glory. It's all because we long for glory. We were made for glory, both to behold it and yet to reflect it in ourselves. But you know the problem. We're all running after things that don't have ultimate glory. Yeah, there's an element of glory. There's an element of glory to LeBron James and to Paul McCartney, to Herschel Walker. If they walk into the room, we all recognize there's a glory in the, the talent they've been given with. But the problem is, is that we look to creative things for ultimate glory. Both to behold it and to enjoy it and to reflect it. The reality is we're oftentimes chasing after things that are mere reflections of what ultimate glory really is. So here's what we see in the passage. We're going to see a picture of what is the true source of glory. And what happens when you begin to behold that glory above all other glories in the that's what we'll see in the passage. So here we're jumping in where, you know, we're working through the book of Colossians. This is a letter that Paul is writing to a young church plant in a city named Colossae. This church plant's probably about Grace Trenton's age whenever this was written. It's a young church. They're just starting to grow up into themselves. They're not even yet a teenager as a church. And they're, they're, they're trying to figure it out. What does it mean to follow Jesus where we live? And Paul is writing this letter to them. And he's like, hey, this is all I'm going to tell you. Paul's never actually met them. Somebody else planted this church. But he's writing to them. And he's like, hey, this, I just 
Spirit pouring to you through these words about the gospel. We read a number of things where he's calling them to and reminding them to the gospel. But then you get to this point right here. We're still in chapter 1. You get to this point right here. And I tell you, my sense in this letter is that this is what Paul wants to say. If you're going to strip everything else away, this is what Paul wants to give you. And it's just Paul is going to say some astounding things about the person of Jesus in just these few verses that we read. I mean astounding things. And he just wants to, just to show it to you. Just say, look at it. Just bask in it. Now, I've made the warning already about Paul's writings is it's just dense. I mean, it's like every word is kind of loaded and every phrase and every clause. Like, it's hard to preach. Because there's so much I want to say. And you can't. So this is something I would encourage you. Just Would you take this week and just dwell on this passage that we're looking at today? Just soak in it. Just ask questions of it and meditate on it and imagine it. Because it's so dense. So in these next few minutes that I want to ask you, just hang with me. Because I want to walk through these verses and just say, here's what Paul's saying. Here's what this means about the person of Jesus. Now, this is so important. Listen, we're in the Bible Belt, and everybody, I get to have conversations with people all the time about what they believe. And everybody likes Jesus. Jesus is like, great. I've found very few people that say anything negative about Jesus. And most people actually believe that Jesus was real. But let me tell you, the things that people believe about Jesus are all over the place. What I find is that most of the time what we're doing, we like Jesus, we know, hey, there's something there that's very powerful. We know that all of human history pivots on this man. Isn't that interesting? We know there's some weight and some glory there, but listen, what often happens is we're creating our own Jesus. We're kind of picking and choosing. I like a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So just what I want you to notice here is Paul lays this out. We don't get to pick our own Jesus. The only Jesus we have is the Jesus that He reveals to us. And I just want us to see what does Paul show us about who He is. So here we go. Verse 15. Many people say this was like an an early Christian hymn that Paul is quoting here. Very fascinating. It's very poetic in the ways that it's laid out. But right off the bat, verse 15, look with me here. Here's what Paul says right off the bat. He, now again, he's talking about Jesus. You see that in context. He is the image of the invisible God. Now there's a lot there. Now, God is invisible. If you've seen God, let's have a conversation after the, after the, the, the service today. I'd like to hear about that. Because the reality is you can't see God and live. Uh, he's manifested himself in different ways, but we can't see God because he's invisible. Now, there's a lot to that. The reason that right now he's invisible, he won't always be invisible, but right now he's invisible. But here's what Paul's saying to us. In the person of Jesus, the invisible God has become visible in the person of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. An image is a physical representation. You see it. It shows you. It's something that you can look at and shows you what someone is like. And that's what Jesus is. The perfect representation 
of who God is. When you look at Jesus, you are looking at God. We'll say later in verse 19, look down at verse 19, for God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. All the fullness of God, everything that you can imagine about what it means that there is a being named God who's created everything, Everything that you can say about Him and know about Him is contained in the person of Jesus. Jesus is God-made flesh. And whenever we look at Jesus, we're looking at God. Whenever we hear the words of Jesus, we're hearing the words of God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. In fact, there is no way for us to know God just think about that. How can something that's finite and created like human beings, like us, how can we ever, ever fathom who God is? Well, the answer is we cannot unless He reveals Himself to us. And He has revealed Himself most powerfully in the person of Jesus. You cannot know God apart from Jesus. That's the first thing that Paul is saying. So he goes on, the firstborn over all creation, the, the, the phrase here, firstborn, is a way of saying the firstborn son, who in this culture was the heir, the heir of the entire estate of the father. It's a way of Paul saying he is the heir of all creation. Everything belongs to him. And he expands on that. Verse 16, for by him, now just get this. I mean, I'm just like, Put this in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> you see what he says about Jesus right here. This is not bigger than your image of Jesus. If this doesn't turn you on, you've got switches. As one of my professors used to say. For by him, Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now that is a mouthful, but it's a way of Paul saying Jesus is supreme over all creation. You see what it says there, that by Jesus all things were created. Nothing in all of creation, whether we're talking about uh, this room, whether we're talking about the earth, whether we're talking about nature, whether we're talking about people, whether we're talking about the universe and galaxies and stars, no matter what we're talking about, Paul here is saying it has been created by Jesus. He has created it. Nothing has been created apart from Him. Jesus is the Creator. And not only was it created by Him, it was created for Him. Every single thing that exists, exists for Him. It belongs to Him. It exists for His glory. That's the reason that it exists. It's the reason that we exist. That's the reason that trees exist. That mountains exist and rivers exist. They all exist for the glory of Jesus. They're for Him. It was interesting as he talks about here, visible and invisible, heaven and earth. You know, heaven is... Heaven is not some place that's up above the clouds. Heaven is a different realm. It's a different dimension. It is a spiritual world. 
One day heaven and earth will be reunited. God made His creation to be interwoven in perfect harmony with the spiritual world. But from the perspective of the Bible, there is a whole spiritual reality that is overlaid over the physical. Now that's hard for us to get because we're modern people. We're enlightened people. We're smart. We know that really the only thing that exists is matter and material. That's what really matters, you know? It's like the, the ground beneath your feet and the money in your pocket and, 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 and earthly power. Like That's the real stuff because it's matter. It's something you can see. It's something you can touch. That's the real stuff. And the spiritual stuff which is just kind of in your mind. Not according to the Bible. According to the Bible, there is a spiritual realm that is all around us. There are spiritual beings that we cannot see. In this room right now, there are spiritual beings. There are spiritual beings everywhere you go. And in fact, even in the world, there are spiritual powers that at work behind all of the earthly powers that we see at work. This is the teaching of the Bible. I know it's very hard for us. It's hard for me to understand because we're not even trained to think in this way. But that's what the Bible teaches. There is an unseen reality that is behind everything that is seen. Some of us know the reality of some of these created beings, whether they be good or bad. Demons or angels, rank upon rank of spiritual beings that we cannot see but yet are powerful and active in our world. But here's the amazing thing about what Paul's saying here. All of that, Jesus made it. He made it. Every spiritual being was created through Jesus. And every spiritual being belongs to Him and exists for His glory. And one day, even the demons will glorify Jesus through His judgment. Everything exists for Every single thing. And not only has He created it, He sustains it. That's what Paul says here. Verse 17, He is before all things. That's, he's before it. There, there was no beginning before Him. He has always existed. He has created all things. And in Him all things hold together. He is holding the universe together. The planets orbit in their exact path because Jesus by His power holds them together. The atoms that are racing in our cells and in everything around us are moving in their orbit in just the right way, not chaos, but order because of the sustaining power of Jesus. Our hearts are beating at this moment because of the sustaining power of Jesus. Does that not just blow your mind? That's exactly what Paul wants to do. So he wants to say here, he starts off with Jesus. He is above all things. He is upholding all things. Every single thing exists for Him, for His glory, for His purposes. Everything that you see in life, trees, rocks, people, governments, houses, neighborhoods, everything exists for His glory, for His purposes. Then Paul makes a slight shift in verse 18 as he begins to talk about the supremacy of Jesus, not just in creation, but in redemption, in his work of 
of salvation. And look at how he starts that off. He starts off with the church. Look what he says here. And he is the head of the body, the church. That's interesting to me. We've just talked about the universe. Paul has just talked about this cosmic Christ who has created and sustained absolutely everything that exists. And then it's like as if he's building, he goes, oh yeah, and you know what else? He's the head of the church. What? what? It, must be, it must be that this reality is a lot bigger than we understand. Now, I think for most of us, we got it this morning when we came here because we're like, well, I'm just going to church today. That's what you do. You get up and you go to church. And I go to church and didn't have anything else going on today. And so we're here at church and starting to feel a little hungry. Where are we going to eat later? And, and we can just walk into this thing here. Thing. Yeah, this is, this is a time to uplift me. Maybe it's even a time to be with people that we love and be encouraged. I hope all of that happens. But are we aware of the cosmic reality taking place? In this hour and a half that we gather That Jesus is the head of this. To be head means you're, you're the chief. You're the goat. You're in charge. That, that for the body, and we talked about how the church is the body, that you know, with a head, the body can't exist. You take the head off, it's done. You can't live. That's where the, the life flows in sustenance and everything. And that's what Paul's saying for the church. Jesus is the life of the church. He's the head of the church. From Him we get life. From Him we are directed. From Him we grow. Apart from Him you can't do any of those things. We must be vitally connected to Him. But He's also the King of the church. The Lord of the church. All of this is His. It's not mine. I'm just a little shepherd. Our, our, our elders are just little under-shepherds. He is the chief shepherd. This is all His. Everything that we're doing here, it is His. He is the head of the church. And the church is the centerpiece of His global, historical, worldwide work of redemption. The church small, as insignificant as it can seem in the ways that we hide from each other and avoid each other and put on masks with each other and we can come in and be bored in this time. And, oh yes, that church, that's the one I'm talking about. There is no perfect church. But yet somehow in this seemingly weak reality, Jesus is bringing about the redemption of the world. He says, I am the head of my church. This is his. All his idea. Then he goes on. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Using firstborn in a slightly different way here. To say he is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. Also remembering he is now talking about redemption. It's a way of referring to Jesus' resurrection. By his resurrection, Jesus has ushered in life. Life is coming into a world full of death. People, through the power of Jesus' resurrection, we now come into new life. We're now born again, and He is the firstborn of that. The precursor, the champion, the one who has gone before us, and by virtue of His resurrection, we now have life. And new creation is now bursting into this broken old creation. 
who is the firstborn from among the dead. And then, in verse 20, just this, this description of redemption here that Paul gives here. You know, one of the things that we've said is that in Paul's writings, he can't go like two verses without going back to the gospel. And one of the things that you'll notice is that he describes the gospel in so many different ways. There are endless summaries of the gospel. Endless summaries of what it means and what are its implications. You can talk about very personally what does the gospel mean for me as an individual. You can talk about what does the gospel mean for a city and a region. You can even talk about what does gospel mean for the world and what does it mean for all of history. That's a little bit more of how he's describing it here. Look at this description of the redemption of Jesus. Verse 20. Through Him, God is reconciling all things to Himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So this redemption brought about by Jesus does not just concern individuals. It does not just concern us as a church, as His people. It also uh, concerns even heaven itself, even the spiritual realm. And the way that he describes it here is a reconciling of all things to himself by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Here's a picture. What's wrong with the world? We all know this world is terribly broken and not what it's supposed to be. You, you don't have to be a genius to figure that out. And a lot of times as I'm talking to people about you know, their objections to Christianity, their objections to Jesus. One of, the, one of the major barriers that people have is this world is so broken. How can a good God make this world? I don't see how that fits together. And you see, the, the, the Bible tells us He didn't. He made a perfect creation of a perfect unity between Himself and humanity, between humanity and one another. Creation was a place of, of peace and love and unity and beauty. All that we long for, we all long for home deep down. That's how God created the world. But yet something happened to His creation. Adam and Eve took a grenade, pulled the pen, and dropped it right into the middle of God's beautiful creation. And the whole thing blew apart. And all of the brokenness that we're carrying around in our lives, all of the brokenness that we see in our world, war and oppression and abuse and division, and broken relationships and broken families and poverty, all of that stuff is a fallout from that grenade going off. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the first sin, all of God's creation was blown apart. It went from something of perfect unity to something of division everywhere you look. And the most fundamental division of all is the separation, the alienation of us from God. That's what we all feel so deeply, our alienation from God. You see how Paul's describing the work of Jesus here? What oh, God, this is the plan of all of human history. It is God's longing to reconcile to himself all things. All things that have been separated, all things that have been blown apart, all things that have, that have fallen into darkness and division and disarray. He 
is reconciling all those things to Himself, bringing them back into relationship with Himself, that we might know Him and from Him is the only source of life, that we would know life overflowing. And yet also it's a reconciling of us to one another. It's the healing of relationships, the healing of nations. All of that is taking place through the work of Jesus. You see how centered on the cross this, this description was? How does he accomplish this great reconciliation of all things to himself? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The cross is central for Paul. Everywhere. And it is through the cross of Jesus that God made peace. See, that was the problem. All of the division, everywhere that you look in this world, whether it be in your own heart or in our world today, all of that is broken. Because humanity and creation itself is at war with God. Separated from God. Alienated from God. You know, whenever you have two parties who are alienated, to make peace is to bring them together. And how do you bring them together? Well, you've got to deal with what's separated. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He made peace. He reconciled us. How do you make peace? Through the shedding of His blood. Through becoming a sacrifice. Through bearing in Himself what separated us. What blew this whole place apart. Sin itself. He paid for it through His blood. So the cross is the mechanism by which God brings all things back together again. All things in creation. All things. You know, it's amazing. You look at the passage, how much you see the word all here. Because Paul wants you to see how far-reaching is the scope of the redemption of Christ? Can I sum up this passage for you? Here's what Paul wants to say. Jesus is supreme in all things. Kind of the, the pivot verse, the middle verse, you know, oftentimes in a, in a passage, there's a pivot point, there's a, a, a middle point on which the whole passage turns. For this passage is verse 28. I mean, I'm 18, I'm sorry, don't look at verse 28. <laughs> verse 18, second part of verse 18. Actually, the last statement in verse 18, look again at what it says. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. That's the vivid verse. That's the summary of what he's saying. The point of all things. What I want you to see, <laughs> Colossians. What I want you to see, Grace Trenton, is that Jesus is supreme in all Things. Some of your translations say so that he might be preeminent. Same word. Supreme, preeminent. It means the same thing. It means without peer, beyond everything that you can imagine. He is alone. He has no help. He has no rivals. There's no one equal to him in power and glory. No one is equal to him in creation. No one is equal to him. Redemption. He is the chief. He is the goat. That's what Paul said. He wants them to see Jesus is supreme in all things. If you're a covenant student, you ought to recognize this first here. You know, covenant college, the motto of the church is in all things Christ preeminent. I have to say, that is my favorite motto and vision and mission of any institution I've ever been Because I think it cuts to the right of the bottom issue. 
to explore and to know and to enjoy the preeminence of Christ over all things. That we would live our lives to say, He is without fear. He is the one. And so the Bible is constantly saying to us, center on Him. Make Him the very core of everything that the church is to be about. Center your life on Him. Whenever we see as a church that we're gospel-centered, we need to be more Christ-centered. Because the gospel is Jesus. It's the message of Jesus. The church we're seeking to just, to just know Him and Him crucified. Nothing else. Everything else is details. It all flows from there. And this too is how we're changed and transformed. You know, I mentioned earlier that I, I get to talk to folks all the time about what they believe. And that's probably my greatest excitement can be a pastor. He's getting to do that. I'm getting to do that more and more lately, which I'm very excited about. But you know what I hear all the time? Again, I'm talking to people and I'm like, hey, what do you think about Jesus? Tell me what you think about Jesus. And, and I've never heard anybody say, and I know some people don't like Jesus, but most people like Jesus. They think he's a great moral teacher. They think that he had great stuff to say. They think that the church is kind of taking Jesus and kind of added some stuff on there that's not there. And, well, the reality is the only Jesus you get is the Jesus that's right here. That's the only one that we have. And we like to kind of create our own Jesus. You know, I find that we don't like for Him to be supreme over all things. Namely me. I like to be supreme over me. That's the reality. Now, I was, uh, I was talking with Stacy Wetzel uh, two weeks ago. He told me this great story. They, his old pastor was uh, Ben Hayden, a guy named Ben Hayden. He's with Jesus now. And uh, he was pastor of First Pres in Chattanooga. And he used to always say this thing, a little jingle. You know how I like to put a little jingle in the middle of the service? Maybe that's why I like Ben Hayden. But he had a little jingle he'd say at the beginning of the service. He'd say, now, you know, we welcome you here. And if you're a visitor, we're glad. And if you'd like to sit down, if you'd like to schedule a time to sit down with me or one of the elders to talk about the claims of Jesus, we would love to do that. This, I just need to tell you right off the bat, this is what you need to do. Every single person should consider the claims of Jesus Christ on my life and on your life. It's just a fundamental thing. And you should consider those claims and you should determine whether He is the Son of God, the only way to the Father, the only way to eternal life, or, or whether He's not. And you should... You should either accept him or you should reject him as a liar and go on your merry way. And that, that, that's a strong statement to say. And I love what Stacy said. He said, at first, it, it just grabbed me. What? Either bow before him or call him a liar, reject him, and walk the other way. And he said, the more that I thought about it, the more that I thought, he's absolutely right. How can you do anything else with the claims of it reminds me of that quote by C.S. Lewis, if you remember it. He said, you know, people want to say all the time, I'm willing to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but not, not as the Son of God and not as the Lord. And, and C.S. Lewis says, wait, 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 you can't do that. Because the person who would go around saying the things that Jesus said would not be a good moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, he would be a liar, or he would be the Lord of all creation. But the one thing he cannot be is a good moral teacher. Either he is Lord or he is a liar. You see, in all 
those statements, it's trying to get you to say one thing. You cannot ride the fence with Jesus. You cannot pick and choose on Jesus. You either got to be all in and you're going to bow your knee or you're going to say, none of it's true and I'm going my merry way. The most fundamental question any human being asks is what do you believe about Jesus? And you've got to face that. It's the most important thing that you face in your entire life. I would love to explore and talk about that today. And I'll start by listening. But then here's the question. What about for those of us who believe? I believe it's the Lord. I'm in, preacher. I believe that. What does this mean for us? See, Paul's writing to Christians. He's not, he's not writing to unbelievers here. He's writing to believers. Why? Because he says, here is the point of it all. Behold the glory of Jesus. That's not just how you get in. That's how you're transformed. That's how you grow. Paul's saying in Colossians, Grace Trentonites. Here's how you, here, here's the meaning of life. Here's how you grow. Here's how you know satisfaction. Behold the glory of Jesus. And then do it again. And then again. It's the only thing that will satisfy you. Here's what happens whenever you begin to see and enjoy the glory of Jesus. All the other things that tend to just grab us and hold us, they lose their grip on them. They're, they're not as glorious as they were before. They don't command you. They don't enslave you in the way that they do. You know what you begin to do? You know, here, here's the ironic thing. We all long for glory. We all can just admit that. We all long for glory. But here's the reality. Do you know the only way to actually get glory? Because we were made for glory. The only way to get glory is to give Him glory. Isn't that interesting how that works? The more glory I give to Jesus, the more that I enjoy Him, the more that I give up everything for Him. That, that's what Paul says happens. When you behold His glory, you just drop everything else. Paul says, for His sake, I've lost all things. You want it? Because it has no value according to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And so the more glory that you give to Him, you know what ironically happens? The more glory you begin to reflect the more weight you get, the more significance you get. But how do you get that? Because we long for that. We want weight. We want meaning. We want satisfaction. Look at us. We're chasing it. Paul says, how do you get it? Behold and enjoy we say our mission is as a church, to enjoy Jesus. That's what we're here for. As we do that, everything else flows from